السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ما بعد so in our last lesson we began with the tafsir of surah al-takathur um, and we uh, went through the introduction of that surah and I just want to summarize that introduction again just to kind of recap what we've done surah al-takathur uh, as we said and we mentioned in our last lesson is a surah which the vast majority of the scholars of tafsir consider to be a Makki surah. They consider it to be a Makki surah, meaning a surah that was revealed before hijrah, or a pre-hijrah revelation. To the extent that many of the scholars, or a good number of them, even mentioned that there is ijma' and consensus on this point, Imam Ibn Atiyah in his tafsir, Ibn al-Jawzi, al-Shawkani, and others, were of the opinion that this surah is Makki bil-ijma' by consensus of the scholars of tafsir. However, there is a narration as Al-Qurtubi and Al-Shokani himself mentions, even though he said there's Ijma', he then mentions another opinion, and that is that there was a handful of scholars, literally a few scholars, who said that there is uh, a, a, a basis to, on which to say that the surah is a Madani surah that was revealed post-Hijrah. And Imam Al-Suyuti, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his Al-Itqan, I believe, if I remember correctly, in, or either in his tafsir, but one of, in one of those two books, he, he kind of leans towards that opinion as well. And we mentioned the reasoning behind that is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about issues such as the grave and the punishment of the grave and so on. And some of the scholars said that those verses in the Quran generally were only mentioned post-Hijrah, not pre-Hijrah. So therefore, some of the scholars went towards it being uh, a Madani surah, but the vast majority of the scholars are of the opinion that it is a Makki surah. And that seems to be the stronger of the two opinions that Allah knows best. It has four names by which it is known in the books of Tafsir. The most famous name, the one that we're familiar with, is the name At-Takathur. And we mentioned who, from amongst the scholars of the past, gave it that name. It is also known by Surah Al-Hakum, which is the first word of the first verse. And it is also known by the first verse, Al-Hakum At-Takathur. So those are three names, Al-Hakum, Takathur and Al-Hakum Al-Takathur. The fourth name, as we said, is Al-Maqbara. It is known as the graveyard. Right? The name Maqbara means graves, the graveyard. And that's because it is a surah in which Allah says, until you will visit the graveyards. And so some of the scholars call it um, Al-Maqbara. And it is mentioned that this is a name, Ibn Abi Hatim in his tafsir mentions that it is narrated from some of the companions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that the surah amongst them was known as the surah of al-Maqbara, the surah of the grave. It has eight verses, and we mentioned five different opinions concerning the reason or the cause of revelation that some of the scholars gave it. They said that there was a reason and a cause or a story, an incident takes place after which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this surah. Five different opinions that we gave. Can anyone remember any of them? why they said that these, this surah was revealed. So the first of them is, this, is, is the narration of Ibn Buraida, that it was revealed concerning two tribes of the Ansar, right? that they would constantly have this competition amongst themselves, in which they're saying that we're better than you, we have more money than you, they're constantly boasting and are arrogant about what, what, what they have in terms of blessings, in terms of number, in terms of wealth, in terms of power and strength, and then Allah Azza wa Jal reveals this verse. That's the first opinion. 
Second opinion is that it's revealed concerning two of the tribes of, not the Ansar, but of the Quraysh, of the Meccans. And again, very similar to the story that they were uh, boasting uh, to one another about which tribe was better than the other, until the narration says that once they had kind of exhausted the living or everything that they could think of concerning those that are living amongst them, they said, let us go to the dead, our deceased. My deceased were better than your deceased, right? Someone died from my qabila, my tribe. They were better from your tribe. And he says, no, but this one died from my tribe. And they're better than your tribe. And so it goes to that level. And so Allah Azza wa revealed these verses. Qatada rahimahullah said that it was revealed concerning two Jewish tribes or two groups amongst the Jews. And again, it's a very similar story where they're boasting about one or they're boasting about themselves towards the other group until Allah Azza wa reveals these verses. The fourth opinion, the opinion of Amr ibn Dinar, rahimahullah, one of the famous scholars of the Salaf, he said that it was revealed for tujab concerning the businessmen, the traders, that when they would go on their trade and their commerce, they would <laughs> boast to one another concerning who has more wealth, who did better trade, who made more profit. And so Allah Azza wa revealed these verses. And the fifth opinion is the general opinion that the scholars of tafsir or the majority of them have kind of taken, and that is something which Imam al-Qurtubi rahimahullah mentions explicitly in his tafsir, that the verse is generic, it's general, it encompasses all of those opinions and more. So even if it's applied to the Quraysh, or it's applied to the Ansar, or it's applied to the businessmen, the verse isn't just particular concerning that one incident or that one cause, but rather it is more generic. Right? And that is the qa'ida, the principle in usul. That it's not just about the cause, but rather the verse is general even if there is a cause for which it is revealed. So just because there was a reason behind it doesn't mean that it's exclusive to that cause. It's exclusive to people who boast about their tribes or their lineage or exclusive to businessmen or exclusive to this or that. It is something which is more general, right? It is something which is more general and therefore it is something which is, uh, which even though the cause may be specific, the ruling that benefits what we deduce from that story is something which is more general. So that's where we kind of got to in the last lesson. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins the first verse and he says, Striving for more distracts you. Striving for more distracts you. Shaykh Abdurrahman al-Sa'di said in his tafsir that Allah Azza wa says, humbling his servants and uh, rebuking them that we have busied ourselves with the dunya and it has distracted us from what we should have been busying ourselves with and that is the reason for which Allah created us that we should worship him alone. What is busying us? The striving for more. And we will come on to uh, the Arabic of that and the eloquence of that particular verse. It is a surah which you will often hear in the books of tafsir and even in general lectures that scholars quote as something which speaks to the issue of constantly wanting more of the dunya, hoarding the dunya, accumulating the dunya, wanting more and more, whether it's in terms of wealth, in terms of power, in terms of you know, possessions, materialistic possessions. It is a surah that speaks about the dangers of hoarding and wanting more. So what I wanted to begin with, because I think this is an important issue, is to look at two or rather three sets of narrations. 
narrations that we find in the Quran and the Sunnah that speak about the ill of hoarding wealth and gathering wealth and amassing wealth, the narrations, the second set of narrations that speak about the, and examples that speak about the positive side of having wealth and being people who are wealthy and people that Allah has blessed with wealth. And then the third set of narrations and texts are what reconcile between the two, right? Bring us both together. Because there is a big issue in many Muslim communities, right? And you know, I'm sure most of us know people within our families and our circle of friends, people who just don't know what to do with wealth. Is wealth in something in Islam which is good or is it bad? Is it evil or is it pure? Should I be working flat out to make money? Or should I be someone who just is happy with the minimum and then just move on and do other things, use my time for other things? And that kind of balance is very difficult because we do have many texts in the Quran and the Sunnah that speak about the evil of wealth and amassing wealth and hoarding wealth. But then you also have narrations that speak about positively about wealth. And we have examples amongst the prophets themselves and amongst the companions of our Prophet وسلم, that had wealth and that used it in good. So the third set of narrations is to bring kind of like a reconciliation that shows you the correct understanding of, of how to understand those two bodies of texts. So the first set of texts, which I think is more than, you know, like it's something which doesn't, we don't really need reminding of because it's something which is quite often quoted and something which you will find many examples of in the Quran and the Sunnah that speak about the evil of wealth and the detrimental harm that it can cause and that the problems and the ills associated with the gathering and amassing and hoarding of wealth. But just by way of example, we have the hadith of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiyallahu an, that the Prophet said sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the hadith is in Bukhari al-Muslim. He said, عَلَى الْمِنْبَرْ وَجَلَسْنَا حَوْلَ As he sat upon the minbar and we sat around him. He said, إِنَّ مِمَّا أَخَافُ عَلَيْكُمْ بَعْدِي مَا يُفْتَحُ عَلَيْكُمْ مِنْ زَهْرَةِ الدُّنْيَا وَزِينَتَهَا He said, from that which I fear for you after me is that the dunya and its beauty will be open for you, meaning it will come towards you. You will gain it. You will have access to it. Why? In the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the companions are relatively poor, the vast majority of them. The dunya hasn't really been opened because the Prophet ﷺ in his lifetime only conquers the Jazeera, the Arabian Peninsula, which, even though it is a you know a great deal of land, doesn't actually have any wealth to it. Arabs generally aren't very rich. The Qabail, the Arab tribes, don't boast a great deal of wealth, even the wealthiest among them pale in significance to what is considered real wealth. And that is the wealth that will be opened up in the times of Abu Bakr, but more so in the times of Umar and Uthman radiallahu anhumah. When they conquer the Romans, the Byzantine Romans, when they conquer the Persians, when they conquer you know, all the way from the east to the west and North Africa, and now the wealth of the dunya comes to them. Now they have all of that hoard of wealth that they gain from conquering those empires. The Prophet is prophesizing. Right? This is a prophecy. I don't fear for you anything like I fear for you. Once the dunya opens up for you, you have access to it, what it will do to you and those who will come after you. Right? And this hadith is in Al-Bukhari and Muslim. It's similar to it, the hadith in Sahih Muslim, also on the authority of the same companion, Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, radiyallahu anhu, the Prophet said, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, inna dunya hulwatun khadira, wa inna Allah ta'ala mustaqrifukum fiha, wa yanduru kayfa ta'maloon. Indeed, the dunya, he said, it is sweet, tempting, khadira, green, meaning it is fertile. Right? There's so much wealth and so much goodness that you can take from the dunya. 
it is fertile, it is green, it is sweet, it is tempting. And Allah Azza wa Jal will make you inherit it. You will have access to that wealth, you will have access to that luxury of the dunya. So Allah can test you to see what you will do in action. Wealth is a test, as power is a test, as knowledge is a test, as all of those things, children are a test, everything is a test. So beware, the Prophet said, of the dunya and beware of the trial of women. Right? So again, Allah Azza wa the Prophet is saying that it is something which Allah will give access to this, to this ummah too. Right? We will have access to it. At times, the Muslim empire was very rich and very wealthy. To the extent that we have the hadith of the Prophet that he said that a time will come where a person will go to look for someone to give their zakah to and they won't find anyone to accept their zakah. Everyone that they go to will say, I am not worthy. I don't qualify. I can't take your zakah. Find someone else and they will find no one that they can give their zakah to. And some of the scholars said, there's narrations that mention that in the time of Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, the famous Khalifa, who ruled between the years 99 and 101 of the Hijrah, they, he had a time that the Muslims were so prosperous and so well-off well and wealthy that they, there was no one that was considered poor enough to take the money of zakah. Right? And that is a prophecy that Prophet was saying that a time will come when the dunya will open up upon you in such a way and it will be a test for you. Another hadith, the hadith of Sahih Muslim of Anas radiallahu an, and this is like a, an amazing hadith. The Prophet said, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, yu'ta bi'an'ami ahli dunya min ahli nari yawm al-qiyamah, that Allah will bring forth from the people that are destined to go to the fire, the one who in this world was given the greatest of blessings, had the most luxurious life, had all of the blessings, had never felt any difficulty, only had ease and contentment and happiness and all of the luxury of the dunya. And then he will be dipped into the fire, just a small dipping. Before he's thrown into the fire, before that person who's destined to go into the fire will be taken into the fire. This is someone who in the dunya has the most luxurious life, never saw any hardship, any difficulty, any trial, any challenge. And they will be placed into the fire a small dipping. It's like a very small, the smallest amount that they will go into the fire. يقال, and then it will be said to that person, Yabna Adam, or child of Adam, Have you ever seen any good? Did you ever feel any happiness? Just from that small dipping. So that man will say, La wallahi ya Rabb. No, by Allah, no. I never saw any good, nor did I experience any type of happiness. Even though he spent his whole life, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, a life of luxury, just from that smallest exposure to the fire, it will be as if he found nothing good from the dunya. And then from the people that are destined to go to paradise in Jannah, Allah will bring forth the one who had the most difficult life, with the most hardships, never found any ease in this dunya, never found any luxury, never found any peace or comfort. And then that person will be dipped the slightest amount into Jannah, into paradise. Then Allah will say to him, O child of Adam, Did you ever experience any hardship? Did you ever find any hardship, any difficulty in your life? 
فيقول لا والله ما مر بي بؤس قط ولا رأيت شدة قط and he will say no by Allah never did I experience any difficulty never did I find any hardship this hadith is not Sahih Muslim right and these are from the hadith that the scholars mention in the books of Az-Zuhd right Az-Zuhd means abstinence right people who should stay away from the dunya and stay away from being attached to the dunya rather and you have famous books Waqi' Ibn al-Jarrah rahimahullah ta'ala the famous teacher of Imam al-Shafi'i there's a book called Kitab al-Zuhd Abdullah ibn Mubarak rahimahullah the famous scholar from amongst the Salaf there's a book called Kitab al-Zuhd many of the scholars of the Salaf they have books that they call the book of abstinence right the book of refraining from being engrossed in the dunya and these are you know like these are narrations that they show therefore the reality of the dunya within them from them is a hadith that is cut in Ibn Majah and others of Sahal ibn Sa'ad al-Sa'idi radiyallahu anhu that a man came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and he said O Messenger of Allah dullani ala amal guide me towards an action if I do it ahabbani Allah wa ahabbani nas Allah will love me and the people will love me guide me towards an action that if I do it Allah will love me and people will love me the Prophet said sallallahu alayhi wasallam izhad fi dunya yuhibbuka Allah wazhad fi ma'inda al-nas yuhibbuka al-nas abstain from that which is in the dunya and Allah will love you and abstain from that which is in the hands of people and the people will love you meaning don't depend on the dunya you will have Allah's love and don't depend upon what others have and the people will love you for that as well and then you have the other hadith the hadith of Anas ibn Malik correcting al-Bukhari and Muslim that the Prophet said sallallahu alayhi wasallam yahramu ibn Adam wa yashubbu minhu ithnan al-hirsu ala al-mal wal-hirsu ala al-umar as the child of Adam grows older in age, two things grow younger within him. As the child of Adam grows older in age, as you reach old age, two things within us come younger. They become shad. Shad means youthful. Right? They become youthful. That is eagerness to gain wealth and eagerness for longevity, to live a longer life. Even a person who gets older in age, as they weaken, those two things will continue to be hopes that they have aspirations that still remain strong more wealth and more time upon the dunya so that's like the first section of of, of hadith right and there are many more verses in the quran that speak about this those verses of the quran that speak about the dunya being all jest and play and the massing of wealth and so on and so forth. And then you have these ahadith that we mentioned on the Prophet And then you have the example of many of the Prophets of Allah that were considered to be, you know, what we would consider to be relatively poor, including our own Prophet where months go by and he doesn't like to fire, months go by and he's eating, surviving on dates and water. And the state of the companions in general, who for the vast majority of them were poor, right? They were the majority, and they, that was the norm amongst the society of the companions. That's the first body of text that you have. The second body of text that you have is, and they are less in number, you know, from my accounting, that speak about the opposite, about the goodness of having wealth, and about the benefits of having wealth. From them is the hadith of the Muslim of Imam Ahmad, rahimahullah, on the authority of Amr ibn al-As, radiyallahu anhu, the Prophet said, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, what a blessing good wealth is for a person who is good 
having wealth that is righteous wealth, good wealth, halal rizq, halal wealth, is good for a person who has wealth. And likewise, the hadith also in Ibn Majah, or rather in Ibn Majah, on the authority of Yasar ibn Ubaid, radiyallahu anda, the Prophet said, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, la ba'sa bil ghina liman ittaqa, wa sihhatu liman ittaqa khayrun min al-ghina, mutibu al-nafs min al-na'im. There is no harm in wealth for the one who has taqwa, whose piety of Allah is conscious of Allah. And to have good wealth, a good health rather, for the one who has taqwa is better than having wealth. Having good health is better than having wealth. And to have a good disposition, to have a good character is from the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then you have many you know, narrations or stories in the prophets Prophets who were extremely wealthy, like for example, Dawood, Sulaiman, right? you could probably put Yusuf within that category because he's a, a ruler and a person who's given position in the dunya. People who Allah from his prophets chose and he gave them wealth and he honored them with, with opening up the dunya for them and kingship and rule and majesty and so on. And then you have companions of the Prophet the most famous being Abu Bakr, Umar, to some extent, Uthman, radiallahu anhu, is a famous example of that, uh, Abdurrahman ibn Awf, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, many others, right, from amongst them. They are the minority amongst the Sahaba, but they are still people who, and you know, an interesting thing actually is to look at this, is you find that many of them are from the ten companions that were promised paradise, right? So Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, Abdurrahman ibn Awf, right, at the very least those five. And you could probably add, you know, even within them at some points throughout their life, other companions who were given wealth. But half of the ten, at least, are from the wealthy companions, right? Which shows you, therefore, that it's not just as easy as everyone just like, you know, getting on the bandwagon and saying money's all evil, money's all bad, shouldn't have money, shouldn't have a nice car, you shouldn't drive, have live, live in a nice house, or any of that stuff that you often hear. There is more to that than meets the eye. So you have those examples. And you have the examples of the scholars as well, uh, that we will mention as well. But there were, there were scholars from amongst the companions and who came after them from the tabi'in, from the salaf, who were extremely wealthy, known for their wealth. Right? And they were people who Allah Azza gave to them much wealth and much money. So therefore you have the first body of text that speaks in one way about staying away from the dunya, staying away from the issues of, you know, of, of, of wealth and, and engrossing yourself in wealth. And then you have those examples and those texts that say, actually, no, it's okay to have wealth. So when you reconcile them, you find what? You find that it's okay to have wealth, but there is always a condition attached. And that condition is what? That you would attach it to taqwa, to piety, to fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which basically means that you spend it and amass it in ways that are pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You gain that wealth in a way that is halal. And if Allah opens up the wealth for you, then you spend it in ways that Allah also loves and is pleased with as well. And that is the example that you find amongst the companions of the Prophet that when they were given wealth, they were people who wouldn't just give zakah, but they would give it in sadaqah. And they would spend it upon the poor and the needy, and they would give it for the Prophet in his jihad, and they would spend it in so many different ways. And that is also found in the Qur'an. This concept is found in the Qur'an. That when you have taqwa and Allah Azza wa gives you wealth as a result of your righteousness, it is from the na'im and it is from the blessings that 
that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bestows upon his righteous servants. Allah says in Surah Ma'idah, verses 65 and 66, وَلَوْ أَنَّ أَهْدَ الْكِتَابِ آمَنُوا وَاتَّقَوْا لَكَفَّرْنَا عَنْهُمْ سَيِّئَاتِهِمْ وَلَأَدْخَلْنَاهُمْ جَنَّاتٍ نَعِيمٍ And if the people of the scripture were to believe and have taqwa, have piety, fear of Allah, we would expiate for them their sins and we would surely enter them into the gardens of paradise. وَلَوْ أَنَّهُمْ أَقَامُوا التَّوْرَاتَ وَالْإِنْجِيلِ وَمَا أُنْزِلَ إِلَيْهِمْ مِنْ رَبِّهِمْ لَأَكَلُوا مِنْ فَوْقِهِمْ وَمِنْ تَحْتِ أَرْجُلِهِمْ مِنْهُمْ أُمَّةٌ مُقْتَصِدَةٌ وَكَثِيرٌ مِنْهُمْ سَاءَ مَا يَعْمَلُونَ And if they were to establish amongst them the Torah and the Injil, the scriptures that they were given, the Torah and the Gospel, and that which was revealed to them from their Lord, then they would eat from the provision that came from above them and from that which came beneath them. And some of the scholars said that it shows that Allah Azza wa Jal, by people who live their lives according to what Allah wants, Allah opens for them the doors of provision from above them and from below them. And that is Allah Azza wa Jal, giving wealth to people of taqwa. Because when a person has taqwa, then they spend that wealth also that they accumulate with taqwa, they spend it with taqwa. They accumulate it with piety, they spend it with piety. Right? And that's what you find also within a number of a hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. For example, the hadith in Al-Bukhari of Abu Dharr, Al-Ghifari radiyallahu an, that he said that I was with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam until he saw the mountain of Uhud. And he said to him that I wouldn't want that all of this mountain of Uhud be changed into gold and that it be given to me that I should keep from that wealth except three dinars, three dinars. Unless I had debts to pay off and loans to repay and I would keep that amount. And then he said, Those who have the most in reality have the least, except for those who do this with their wealth and they do this with their wealth. And he, the narrator, he says uh, that he made this indication with his wealth, meaning that he spends this way, he spends that way, and he spends that way. He showed to his right, to his left, to in front of him in the other narration, he said, and behind him. Meaning that he spends this way, he spends that way, he spends this way, he spends that way. Meaning that he gives in the path of Allah in every direction. And then he said, but few are those people. Few are those people who when they're given that type of wealth will spend it in that way. And then the hadith goes on that the Prophet said to Abu Dhar, stay here. And he left to a place not too far. So I heard a sound. And I wanted to go and see what that sound was, were it not that the Prophet had told me to stay where I was. Then the Prophet returned and he said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, I heard a sound. What was it? He said, Did you hear it? I said, Yes. He said, That was Jibreel who came to me and he said, Whoever dies from my ummah without committing shirk with Allah, they will enter into Jannah. I said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, even if they do such and such and such and such, he said, Yes, even if they do such and such and such and such. This hadith therefore shows. The Prophet is saying that when a person has wealth and they're able to use that wealth in ways that are good, then it is something which a person is allowed to have. In fact, it is a blessing for them. And to have it is good if they use it in ways of goodness. What is then the criterion that the scholars mention? The criteria is that you don't become attached to the dunya. When the books of, of Zuhud are written and the scholars speak about this issue of Zuhud, in fact, you know, one of the interesting things which we'll mention shortly is that some of the authors of those books of Zuhud 
are themselves extremely wealthy. Like Abdullah ibn Mubarak, rahimahullah. A scholar who wrote a book on abstinence of the dunya, and we'll mention this right, in, a, in a short while, a statement that, he, that, is, that is attributed to him, was actually one of the most wealthiest of scholars. Someone that Allah Azza wa Jalla opened up for him much wealth. It said that his yearly income was 400,000 gold pieces, gold dinar. That's what he used to make in a year, 400,000 or more, some say. That's the wealth that Allah Azza wa gave to him. But he writes a book on having abstinence from the dunya. And that's because those scholars never allowed themselves to become attached to the dunya, subservient to the dunya, submitted themselves to the dunya. And so that wealth was easy for them to spend, easy for them to give away, easy for them to spend upon others. Whereas the problem is when you become a servant to the dunya, right? That's the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Ta'isa Abdul Dinar, Ta'isa Abdul Dirham. Right? Cursed is the slave of the dinar, cursed is the slave of the dirham. Right? That's because they've become subservient to it, right? Everything's about that wealth. By hook or by crook, you gain it, and then you hoard it and you keep it and you don't spend it and you don't help others around you who need it. Muhammad ibn al Muntadir. Rahimahullah Ta'ala, one of the scholars of the Tabi'een from the students of Aisha and Abu Huraira radiallahu anhumah, he said, Ni'mal awnu ala taqwa Allah al-ghina. How blessed is wealth in helping you to gain the taqwa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That if you have wealth and you're minded to use it in a good way, it helps you come closer to Allah, brings you closer to Allah azza wa in terms of deeds, in terms of reward, in terms of what it is that you're uh, hoping to gain in terms of your salvation in this life and the next. Another scholar by the name of Abu Zinad. Abu Zinad is a scholar also from the Tabi'een. He studied under the likes of Anas ibn Malik and I think Abdullah ibn Zubair and a number of the companions of the Prophet He was one of the most famous scholars of, of Hadith to the extent that Imam al-Bukhari, Imam al-Bukhari in his, in his uh, books of Hadith, he has what is called a silsila dhahabiyya, a golden chain of narrators. Right, so you all know the hadith that we have in Bukhari and Muslim and other books of hadith are narrated to us via a chain of narrators that go from the author of the book like in Imam al-Bukhari all the way back to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa You have a chain of narrators. Imam al-Bukhari has something that he would call a golden chain, meaning that this is the most authentic, most trustworthy, the best chain of narrators that you can have. Right? The most famous of them is Imam Malik, عن نافع عن عبد الله ابن عمر رضي الله عنهما رحمهم الله مالك reads from his teacher نافع who reads from his teacher the companion Abdullah ibn Umar he says that this is a golden chain why is it a golden chain because there is no shadow of a doubt that each one of them in their time were the most trustworthy the most knowledgeable the most like you know with the scholars of the most understanding each one of them reads from the other another one he gives is of this scholar Abu Zinad he says that the best chain of narrators to Abu Huraira radiallahu an is Abu Zinad on the authority of A'raj on the authority of Abu Huraira radiallahu an. So Abu Zinad is a famous scholar of the scholars of Hadith. Someone came to him once and they said Abu Zinad became a governor of his time I think and he also was someone who was with the Umayyad the Umayyad, khulafa, the Umayyad rulers used to use him in positions of power and leadership and so on. So he gained access to wealth. And someone said to him, why do you have a love or why do you make money? Why do you have wealth and it lowers you towards the dunya? Lowers you towards the dunya, meaning it makes you someone who's attached to the dunya. 
He replied and he said, uh, he has, it's a very nice statement, Even though my wealth lowers me, attaches me to the dunya, it also protects me from it. Right? Which is a very like wise statement. What he's saying is yes, by having wealth, you have to have a certain attachment to the dunya. You have to spend time making money. You have to dedicate effort towards the dunya and accumulating that wealth. But at the same time, by having wealth, I can protect myself from the dunya as well. Because having poverty leads you to issues, right? Being poor leads you to other, the other issues of becoming dependent upon others and seeking loans and asking people for help and outstretching your hands towards others. And it protects me from the dunya. No one can come and have any favor over me, right? No one can come and kind of humiliate me or lower me because I am in need of something that they have. So yes, it lowers me in a way, but at the same time it protects me. And this shows you, and the reason why I'm bringing you these statements is it shows you the understanding that the Salaf had of, the, of this concept, the scholars of the past, that the look or the, the view of wealth wasn't just a black and white and simple view. Sufyan al-Thawri, rahimahullah ta'ala, the famous scholar of hadith and the famous scholar amongst the Salaf, he used to say, in the past, right, and, he, and like he only died, when did he die? 161 Hijrah. Right? So when he says in the past, it's not like that, that old. In the past, he says that wealth was disliked. But now, it is the crown of the believer. That's what Sufyan al-Thawri said in his time. In the past, it was disliked, meaning in the time of the companions, in the time of the tabi'in, it was disliked. Now, it is like the crown of the believer. Because now, otherwise, when dunya opens up and everyone has money, the only thing that people respect you is if you have some money, you're self-sufficient amongst yourself. If you're not self-sufficient, you're in need, you're constantly asking people for money, you're constantly asking people for financial help, it lowers you in their eyes and it humbles you or humiliates you in their eyes. So he says, yes, before, in the time of the companions, it wasn't an issue. The vast majority of them were poor and even the poor amongst them were given honor not because of wealth but because of other things. Bilal radiallahu an, Salman al-Farsi, Suhail, those companions who were poor, Abu Hurairah, but they have honor amongst the companions because the companions didn't look at people and judge people based on their financial income or their financial status. Now, he says, in our time, and he died in 161 Hijri, now it's not the same. People look at wealth as a measure of who you are and what you deserve. And that is a problem, obviously, in our outlook and in the way that we judge people, but it is a reality. If it is something that was a reality of his time, then in our time it is obviously a much worse problem. And someone came to Sufyan al-Thawri rahimahullah ta'ala one day and he said to him, as he was holding dinars, gold coins in his hands, he said to him, Oh Abu Abdullah, how can you hold these gold coins? Meaning that you're a scholar of hadith, you're a scholar of Islam, what are you doing holding these coins? He said to him, the man uskut, be quiet. Were it not for this, لَتَمَنْدَلَ I don't know what that means. لَتَمَنْدَلَ is the verb of mindil. What is mindil? Mindil is a handkerchief, a tissue. He's saying were it not for these coins, people would treat us like handkerchiefs and tissues, meaning that they would discard us, right? They would think nothing of us. Right? And so he's saying that that's, that's what it is now in the time that he's living in, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. One of the scholars who was given much wealth by Allah Azza wa Jal, who was very prosperous, is the scholar, the Egyptian scholar, Al-Layth ibn Sa'd. 
Rahimahullah Ta'ala. Later Ibn Sa'ad is from the contemporaries of Imam Malik. Rahimahullah is a teacher to Imam al-Shafi'i. And Imam al-Shafi'i would praise him. And he would say he was equal in knowledge to Imam Malik. Right? He was like of that level of knowledge. Imam al-Layth ibn Sa'ad, rahimahullah, had wealth. He was extremely wealthy to the extent that some of the, the students, his students, said that we would look at his clothes, we would look at his house, we would look at the animals that he rides, his riding beast. We would bring all of that together and we would estimate that it probably cost 18,000 dirhams, 18,000 silver coins. Right? And that's because of the wealth that he has to spend upon himself, let alone upon other things. And Fudayl ibn Iyad, rahimahullah ta'ala, who's one of the most famous scholars of Zuhd, known to be a Zahid, an Abid, someone who completely devoted themselves to Allah Azza wa Jal, who had no interest in the dunya, was very poor. And he has some amazing statements about how he, you know, he's not really fussed about anything in this world. He said to Abdullah ibn al-Mubarak, Rahimahullah, Abdullah al-Mubarak is a scholar who has much wealth, extremely prosperous, extremely wealthy. He said that Abdullah ibn Mubarak, when he wanted to go and make Hajj, he would gather the people of his village and he would ask, who, ask them who was going for Hajj, who'd save money for Hajj, and they would come forward and he would take their money and would say, we'll go together. Right? Kind of like you know, the early, early Hajj groups. Right? This is like a third, fourth century iteration of a Hajj group. So he says, I will take your wealth and we'll go together and I'll spend, from, you know, I'll spend on you. So they entrust their wealth to him and they say, okay, you be the group leader, you take us. So he would leave their wealth at home and he would lock it in a chest and he would spend upon them from his wealth, right? And he lived in like Khurasan or something, right? In the, you know, the modern day Soviet republics, one of those areas. And he spends from there to Mecca, Hajj and back from his own wealth. And when they would return, he would open up the chest and he would give them back their money. That's how much Allah Azza wa had given him in wealth. And it said that once he was making Hajj with his servant, just the two of them, and they left and halfway towards Mecca, they came across a group of people, caravan of people who were searching on the ground for food. Right? They're poor. They're looking on the ground for food. So he says to his servant, go to them and ask them, why are they looking on the ground? What, what are they searching for? So the servant goes and speaks to them. He comes back and he says to Abdullah ibn Mubarak, he says to him that these people have come from a very distant land, far away. And they gather their wealth and their possessions and whatever they have, and they're going for hajj. But now that they're halfway there, they finished all of their supplies. No money, no food, no water, nothing left. So they're looking on the ground because their children are crying out of hunger. They're hungry. So they're looking on the ground for food that they can find to feed you know, the, the children and the weak amongst them. They can't go home. They have no money left. They're not even towards Mecca. Let alone go to Mecca and make Hajj, which in those days it was like a month more or more than a journey. Then go back home after that. So Abdullah ibn Mubarak said to his servant, take the wealth that I have, that I've bought with me, and distribute it amongst these people. So they gave his money to all of these people, spread it amongst them, so they could go and make hajj and go back. But Abdullah ibn Mubarak had no money left, so he went home that year, didn't make hajj, went back home. After hajj, it is said that he saw a man come to him in his dream, and he said to him, hajjun mabrur, wa sa'yun mashkur, wa zambun maghfur. You have and accepted Hajj from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And you have amazing stories of this scholar, how much he would spend. And it's well known, his, the way he would spend upon the students of knowledge, and he would help the scholars of his time, and he would take wealth, and he would go to them quietly, like without their family knowing, and he would give them a thousand dinar. And he would say to them, I came to you quietly so that your family wouldn't know, meaning I don't want to embarrass you. 
point of view children, your point of view family. But this is for you and I want to help you. And he would seek as a means of coming closer to Allah helping those people through the wealth that Allah had blessed him with. Abdullah al-Mubarak al-Fudayd said to him, Oh Abdullah, you tell us to have zuhr. Because he wrote a book on zuhr. Fudayl is saying to him, you tell us to have zuhr and to not become attached to the dunya and to stay away from the dunya. But I see you with so much wealth and so much business. Right? Because he was a trader. He has business coming from this part of the world and that part of the world. So you're telling us to stay away from the dunya, but you're someone who has so much money. So Abdullah ibn Mubarak said to him, Rahimahullah, he said to him, Oh Abu Ali, meaning Al-Fudayl. He said, I do it to protect my honor. I do it to protect my honor, and I use it to help myself obey my Lord. I use it in means to come closer to Allah Azza I protect my honor, meaning I'm not in need of anyone, don't have to ask anyone for anything, completely independent, but I also use it as a way of coming closer to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. So Al-Fudayl ibn Uyad said to him, O oh, Ibn Mubarak, ma ahsanu dha in tamma dha. How amazing that is if you can do that. Meaning if that's what you're doing it for, then it's amazing. And you have so many other narrations from amongst the companions and amongst the Salaf, rahimahumullah. So it shows you that this concept of wealth and the reason why you know, I've gone into it in some detail and some length is because we're going to speak here in a surah and a verse of the Quran in which it is from the first body of text, right? And that is what? that generally you stay away from the dunya because the vast majority of people don't have that self-discipline. They don't have that self-control that if they become engrossed in the dunya, they become attached to it and they become subservient to it. And they have an inferiority complex when they come across people who have more wealth than them, more money than them, more status than them. They find themselves becoming inferior to them because of that inherent thing that wealth does to most people where if you have it, even if you're someone who's completely jahil, ignorant, doesn't know jackal about anything, but you have money, and now you're at the top of the world. And then you have someone who may be the best of people, most, the greatest in character, most noble and honorable of people with the most integrity, but because they have very little wealth or no wealth, people tread all over them and they walk all over them. And so that's an important concept to understand, as always Islam, is that religion of, of balance. Uh, let me just take this question before we, we go on. Rashid asks, you made reference to Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin al-Shanqiti. Is he the Sheikh who taught Sheikh bin Baz and Sheikh Nassimin? What relation, if any, is Sheikh Muhammad ibn Muhammad al-Muqtar al-Shanqiti currently teaching in Medina to him? What relation is Sheikh Muhammad bin Ali al-Shanqiti to him? There are so many Muhammad al-Shanqitis. <laughs> okay, so before this comes like a, becomes like a family tree, and a lesson about uh, which Shanqiti is related to which one. Muhammad is a very common name everywhere, right? not just amongst the, the Shanqiti scholars. Shanqiti is, is an area of, of Mauritania, right? and these scholars hail from the area, uh, and they, that's why they call it Shanqiti. And, and, and a number of them moved to Saudi Arabia, I think, in the 70s, during the era of King Faisal, when he called over many of the scholars from those lands to come and settle in Saudi Arabia because of their knowledge. The scholar that we refer to in these lessons is Muhammad al-Amin al-Shanqidi. And he's the author of a famous book of tafsir called Adwa' al-Bayan. Adwa' al-Bayan. And it is a book which primarily focuses on making tafsir of the Qur'an with the Qur'an. Tafsir of the Qur'an, verses of the Qur'an using other verses of the Qur'an. It is a book which he wrote a number of volumes of and then he passed away, rahimahullah ta'ala. And the Sheikh used to live in Saudi Arabia, but he later on settled in Medina. And he was one of the early professors of 
Islamic University of Medina. So the early students who went to Medina in the 70s and 80s, they most likely would have been taught by the Sheikh. His specialism was tafsir. I mean, he was a polymath. He, had, he knew all of the sciences, but what he was well known for in particular was tafsir and usul al-fiqh. And he has books in both. When he passed away, he has a student who was also a professor at the, at the University of Medina, an Egyptian scholar by the name of Muhammad Atiyah Muhammad Salih, rahimahullah, who was also one of the early teachers of the university. He's a student, one of the primary students of Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin, and he completed his work of tafsir. So Adwal al-Bayan is a very amazing book of tafsir. Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin, yes, he also taught Sheikh Nathimin, rahimahullah, is, from, is considered from his teachers, and many of the old scholars of that time and that era uh, are considered to be students of him. Sheikh bin Baz, I don't know that he's a student of Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin. Sheikh bin Baz was more likely contemporary, similar in age, because Sheikh bin Baz is also a teacher of Sheikh al-Nathimin. However, sometimes Sheikh bin Baz, from his humbleness, his humility, you know, his, his, the humbleness that he would show, is that if one of the scholars was teaching, he would sit in their lessons. He would just come and he would sit. Not because he was a student of them, but that's from his humbleness. If he saw a scholar teaching the haram or something and he wanted to go and sit with them and benefit them, he would just go and sit in their lessons. And not only people like Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin, it's reported that Sheikh Mubaz did this with scholars who were much younger than him, like 30, 40, 50 years younger than him. But if they were teaching the haram in Mecca or Medina and he was there and he wanted to just sit down, he would sit, rahimahullah ta'ala, and that's from his, his humbleness. Right? And that's a sign of you know, humility and humbleness from a scholar that even though he's the Grand Mufti and the teacher probably of their teachers, that he would still have that kind of character to go and sit with them. The Sheikh that is currently teaching in Medina, the famous Shanqidi, uh, who's one of my teachers as well, who's teaching in Medina, is Muhammad ibn Muhammad al-Mukhtar al-Shanqidi. His father is a contemporary of Muhammad al-Amin. His father's name is Muhammad al-Mukhtar, the current one in Medina, his father, He's a famous scholar of hadith, and he has a book on uh, the explanation of Sunan Abi Dawood. And he used to teach in the Haram as well. He used to teach in both of those shanqitis taught in the Haram. They are contemporaries, the father. But they're not related. As far as I know, they're not related. Unless there's some tribal connection. They're both from the same tribe. So there may be like a connection there, but they're not like closely related to the best of my knowledge. The sheikh that is currently uh, from the senior scholars of Saudi Arabia, and he teaches in the Haram in Medina and elsewhere, He's the son of another sheikh by the name of Muhammad al-Mukhtar. So his name is Muhammad, the son of Muhammad Mukhtar al-Shanqidi. Right? And he's the famous scholar of fiqh and he has like many, many lectures and many lessons. Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin has two sons. So the author of tafsir has two sons. Just to further confuse this, one of their sons' names is Muhammad Mukhtar. Right? Just to further confuse you. And the second one, his name is Abdullah. So he has two sons. Muhammad Mukhtar, both of them were professors at the university. I think they're both retired now. One of them was uh, a specialist in Usul, Muhammad Mukhtar, and Sheikh Abdullah Shaqid. He's actually been to the UK. I don't know when he came. He came a few years back. But anyway, he's, he's actually a specialist in tafsir. Sheikh Muhammad Mukhtar, the oldest son of Muhammad Al-Amin, passed away only like a couple of months ago. He passed away very recently. And Sheikh Abdullah is still living, but obviously they're like in the olden age. So that's kind of like the family history that I know of concerning those Shanqiti scholars. And then there's others, so I don't know who Muhammad bin Ali is. There's plenty, like even in the university, we used to have plenty of Shanqiti uh, scholars and sheikhs. And, you know, generally speaking, mashallah, they, they are all very, very well-versed, very knowledgeable. 
in their fields and in their particular sciences. Any questions? Preferably not about Shafiqi. I was going to say, Shafiqi, are any of these related to Shaykh Zaid or Allah, I have absolutely no idea. So when it comes to like, <laughs> I barely keep track of my own relations, let alone the <laughs> Shankaritis and who they're related to. Um, they may well be. Shankariti is like a general name for anyone that comes from that part of Mauritania. So just because they have that same like, you know, kind of name, I don't know if they're necessarily related to each other. The, the two, Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin and Sheikh Muhammad Mukhtar, come from a tribe called Jakni. So you'll often find this on their books, they write Al-Jakni Al-Shankriti. And Jakni is the tribe that they come from. So I think there's some tribal link between them at the very least. Maybe there's even some other relation. Um, but as for these others, I don't know. Allah, I, I, don't, you know, I don't want to say either way. Anyone else? Okay. So uh, let's continue, inshallah, with the tafsir of the first verse. So we mentioned the, the, the statement of, of Sheikh Sa'adi rahimahullah ta'ala who is a teacher of or was a teacher of Sheikh Ibn al and his, in his tafsir he says that Allah Azza wa mentions this as a way of rebuking those people who distract themselves or become distracted by the dunya and it distracts them from the main objective from the reason that Allah created them and that is his worship alone subhanahu wa ta'ala. Al-Imam al-Razi in his tafsir he says al-ilha al-ha the, the noun or the verb that it comes from the root word al-ilha means to turn away towards lahu right? and lahu is play or to become distracted or to become engaged in something frivolous that is al-lahu and he said and being engaged in al-lahu comes from hawa which means desire so they will have very similar root words it is to respond to your desires and that is why he says that Allah often uses it in a way in the Quran which is, uh, which is ignoble, which is unpraiseworthy. Lahu is considered to be unpraiseworthy in the Quran and in the Sunnah. And so Alha kumut takathur, the word Alha comes from Ilha, which itself comes from Lahu, which itself comes from Hawa. Right? So all of those three are, are related. And it basically means to be distracted, to become busied, to become heedless of what is important with something which is unimportant, to be distracted from what is important by something which is not important. Ibn al-Juzayr, who is one of the famous scholars of Andalus, is one of the scholars of Tafsir that you'll find in the biographies that I, that I uh, did uh, from the 8th century in Granada, from the scholars of Andalus. He has a book of Tafsir called At-Tasheel, Ni'ulum al-Tanzil. It is a book of Tafsir. He said in his tafsir, rahimahullah ta'ala, that Allah Azza wa Jal, when he says, Alhaakum al-Takathur, striving for more has distracted you, it is Allah rebuking us. It is a form of rebuke. So Allah isn't saying this as a fact, or Allah Azza wa Jal isn't just saying this for the sake of saying it, but rather it is meant as a rebuke that you have become distracted by wanting more and striving for more. What is it that we're striving for? What is the more that is being striven for? Abdullah ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhuma, al-Hassan, Ata, and others, they said, fil amwali wal awlad, in striving for more wealth and striving for more children. And they use amwal and awlad because it is a concept that Allah Azza wa mentions often in the Quran. Al-malu wal-banuna, zinatul hayat al-dunya. Your wealth and your children are from the adornments of this life. Right? La tulhikum amwalukum wa la awladukum adhikrillah. 
that not your children nor your wife divert you away from the remembrance of Allah. So they're basically bringing those verses in here and they're saying that it is, it is by way of example this is, right? It's not exclusive, but by way of example that what, distrives, what distracts you is your amassing of wealth and your amassing of children. Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala said al-hakum refers to the boasting of those tribes you know, that we mentioned at the beginning as the cause of revelation. He said that is the boasting when one person says that I have more than the other and then they all pass away in that state of heedlessness where their whole life is basically keeping up with the Joneses, right? They're just constantly competing with one another. You have more, so I need more. I have more, so now you want more. And so we're constantly going back and forth, trying to best one another, and we waste our whole lives in this until death comes upon us. Muqatil said that amassing, it busies you and keeps you away from working for the Akhirah and working from the hereafter. And Al-Mawardi said, it is the same. Al-Hakum al means that it either busies you or it makes you forget. And both are very similar in meaning. Al-Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala, rahimahullah. Al-Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, he combined between the two and he said that Allah Azza wa says that you have become busy with the amassing of wealth and the amassing of anything of number. Right? So he doesn't just uh, make it exclusive to wealth and children but anything in which you boast an increase in number. So my tribe is bigger than yours. My children are more than yours. I have more money than you, more cars, more houses, more land. Anything that you can increase in terms of number, that is what has distracted you and busied you from the remembrance of Allah Azza wa and working for the Akhirah. And Ibn Atiyah rahimahullah ta'ala said something very similar. Sheikh Shanqiti, the one that we were speaking about, Muhammad Al-Amin of Tafsir, he said in his tafsir that Ibn Qayyim ta'ala, he quotes from Ibn Qayyim, the famous scholar, and he said that Allah doesn't mention what it is that we're amassing. He says striving for more has distracted you. But he doesn't mention what we're striving for that is more. Allah doesn't say it's wealth, he doesn't specify it by wealth or children or anything else, he leaves it general. So Ibn Qayyim ta'ala said he left it general for one of two reasons. Number one, Either because what is disliked is the act of amassing more. It is the act itself that Allah is dispraising. That you're constantly wanting more. That need or that desire, that emotion within us, that is the problem. That we constantly think we have to have more than everyone else. I have to best him and him and her and her and everyone else around us. That emotion, that feeling, that is what Allah is criticizing. Or number two, he said, Allah left it open so that it includes everything. Why? Because otherwise, if it's wealth, people say, okay, but I, I'm not really fussed about wealth. For me, it's about something else. Or if it's houses, that person says, well, I'm not fussed about houses. I prefer cars. If it's cars, so everyone limits it to just their own little, you know, thing that they have and their problems. So Allah makes it generic and open so it includes everything. Any type of amassing, any type of wanting more and more and more. So he said, Sheikh Shanqiti, this is. Number one, it includes everything. Right? So Allah Azza wa is criticizing that need of wanting more and more and more. And number two, Allah Azza wa increases within it wealth and children and honor and position and status and land and houses and buildings and everything else that people boast over in terms of wanting more. Allah Azza wa includes all of them. Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala said that Allah Azza wa says that you will continue on this way 
until death comes to you. And that even going, and we come on to the second verse, but he says, Hatta zurtumul maqabir, until you go to the graveyards. He says, it's not just about you dying, that this will continue upon, up until death, but he says that even by going to the graveyards to visit them, or attending the funerals of other people, that should cause a reminder, should be a reminder for us to say, actually wait and stop and think. And perhaps I should focus on what comes after death and work towards the akhirah. Even that reminder doesn't take place because a person becomes so engrossed in the dunya that even that type of reminder doesn't benefit them. They're so heedless that even seeing the death of those around them doesn't make them stop and question their own self and what it is that they should be working towards as well. And that's what Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala said, it is your love of the dunya and its wrong and its comfort and its pleasures that has busied you from working for the akhirah and seeking it and this will continue until death comes to you and you visit the graves. Right? And we'll speak about that inshallah in more detail next week. And Ar-Razi said in his tafsir that Allah Azza wa doesn't specify doesn't specify what we're striving for more and trying to accumulate because in the Arabic language, he said it is more eloquent to leave it open-ended. Whereas if you limit it to something, then it is only limited in the minds of people to that one or two or three things. But Allah Azza wa doesn't even say wealth. And as we mentioned before, the concept of wealth in Islam is much larger than just money. It's not just silver or cash. or It is much larger. right? So it could be animals for people who are farmers. could be land for people in agriculture. could be land for business people. or could be buildings for someone who's trading and could be includes everything al-mal but allah Azza wa doesn't even mention mal because even that constricts you just to wealth but includes honor and includes many other things as well and one of the things that we will mention inshallah ta'ala next week because i think we'll stop here but one of the things that some of the scholars even mentioned like ibn qayyim and others is that it even includes knowledge right wanting to amass more and more knowledge just for the sake of amassing knowledge and books islamic books I want more books and more books. I want a bigger library. Have you ever read any of those books? Do you use them? No. But I want a bigger library. I want more books. Any type of amassing that distracts you from what you should be focusing on, some of the scholars said it falls within this verse or in the generality of this verse. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Any questions? Okay. Barakallahu feekum. So inshallah ta'ala, I will see you guys next week. Muhammad. Oh yes, before we go, <laughs> before we go, inshallah ta'ala, we have a special session tomorrow at 8 o'clock here in this masjid. Sheikh Abu Isa is coming and he's doing his logical progression here in Birmingham as a one-off special. He's not actually moving to Birmingham. Uh, but he's going to be here, inshallah ta'ala, tomorrow, 8 o'clock, right? 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock he's going to come here, inshallah ta'ala, um, and he's going to do his logical progression, which is a study of fiqh. It's a fiqh study, and I think he's on the book of prayer. And he's going to be doing that, inshallah ta'ala, here live tomorrow, 8 o'clock. So please be here, inshallah, and, and benefit from that as well. Barakallahu feekum, sallallahu Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.